This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are focused on making disciples. Our goal in all of this is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Now, you're about to hear a session from the Bonhoeffer Project, and one of the major emphases in disciple making from the Bonhoeffer Project is helping you hone your understanding of the gospel that Jesus preached so that you can better follow Jesus and make disciples of Jesus in light of the gospel. They are clear-minded about false gospels out there and how those false beliefs affect disciple-making efforts. Their message is, get your gospel right before you're able to rightly make disciples. That's how they approach discipleship in general. Well, they've given discipleship.org a primer to the book that the founder of the Bonhoeffer Project, Bill Hull, wrote. It's called The Discipleship Gospel, and he wrote it with Ben Sobel's. And by the way, it's a discipleship.org book, so you can download the free primer to this book at discipleship.org slash ebooks and search for The Discipleship Gospel Primer by Bill Hull and Ben Sobels. Today we're featuring an episode from the Bonhoeffer Project from the National Disciple Making Forum. The episode is called The Clarity Gap, featuring Bill Hull and the Bonhoeffer Project team. Enjoy the listen. So here we are, and we're welcome to our second session. And this session is on, uh, you know, this is all about discipleship gaps. And the first was about the gospel itself. And I thought that that we at least opened up a number of cans of worms for you and set you to thinking, uh, maybe deconstructing a few things in your mind, at least planting seeds for that. And while I'm not a a fan of deconstructionism as a way of life because, you know, philosophers and people who have lost their way in their worldview love to deconstruct things. Uh, Have you noticed how oftentimes people love to deconstruct things, take them apart? They're experts at taking them apart. But then they never can seem to put it back together again. And that's not good because then when you drop something which is, let's say, orthodoxy, and then you take it all apart, but you have nothing to replace it with except sentimentality or just some ideas. And Oh, thank you, dear. This is my wife, Jane. Give her a hand. Fifty years of marriage, and uh, I know what a Christian's like because I married one. I was her disciple. So it's been wonderful 50 years. 50 plus now, actually. Uh, in fact, for her 50 years of service to our country, she's going to be receiving the Presidential Medal of Honor in a couple of weeks, so we're really happy about that in our family. All right. So the, um, this particular session is about the definition gap, essentially, about clarity concerning... The gospel. Now, if you're with us previously, uh, I'm not going to repeat myself, but only slightly. And here we go with the big moment. Oh, yes, I was able to get that out. That's good. If you were uh, had a shoe factory, 
and you were telling somebody about your products. And you took them out overlooking the manufacturing floor. And what you found, you said, and somebody asked you a question. Question is, what kind of shoes do you make? We make shoes with a left foot and a right foot. Uh-huh. And do you make, we make brown shoes? We make black shoes. We make saddle shoes, let's say. But you look down on the floor, and there's people making a variety of kinds of shoes. And the man, the, the observer says, these people all down on the floor, they know they're making shoes, but they're making different kinds of shoes. There's different kinds of designs in the shoes. Uh, there's different kinds of little, some people put their own little uh, marks on it, uh, something that's favorite to them, uh, maybe flowers or uh, maybe swirls or abstract kinds of things. Uh, they're, they're, they, some people just say, you know, I'm bored with brown or black or the saddle shoe, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a different color. I'm going to make all kinds of different shoes. Uh, you would go out of business if that were the case because you've got to have specifications. You have to know what each shoe costs you, uh, what it's actually going to do, whether it's going to work or not, and then, of course, what can you sell them for? Will anybody be interested in them? All of these factors come into play. So when we talk about make disciples, and we have too much ambiguity in our decision-making or our descriptions, we, we have disciples becoming just about everything. You know, when discipleship revolution or the Renaissance, let's call it that, uh, a renaissance is somewhat different than a revolution. Revolution where actually take, things take hold. A renaissance is just a renewal of interest. And in, so essentially, uh, the discipleship or disciple-making, if you like, renaissance in the last decade in our country, and it's really not, it's not even, maybe not even a decade old now, but the language has changed dramatically. The language we use about why we're leaders, and what we're trying to accomplish. It's come from things about leaders, or it has um, come into things like um, oh, evangelism or some other emphasis. It's changed uh, in that way. But we've now started talking about making disciples. And so we have to be clear about making disciples, because if we're not clear, uh, our attempts to make disciples will have the same problem they had at the Tower of Babel, or slightly different kind of problem, but we're using the same words, but they have different meanings. And uh, I just forgot something that I remembered something that I forgot, and that is you got cards when you came in, and we can't have the drawing at the end unless you fill out the cards. So I'm sorry, I forgot that, but just go ahead and fill out those cards now while I'm speaking. I won't be offended. You take those cards and pass them over to this aisle, please. And then there will be a drawing for books afterwards. So thank you for doing that. We appreciate that very much. Now back to the episode. We... we uh, 
So we, we talk about making disciples. And if you go to your church and you just ask around, what is a disciple? I think you'll get a variety of answers. You will get the answer, a uh, disciple is someone who follows Jesus. A disciple is a learner or a student. A disciple is someone who's really uh, serious about Jesus. A disciple is a green beret for Christ. Uh, a person who's willing to go door to door in the Jesus name. A disciple is somebody who's willing to go anywhere that God sends them and leads them. Uh, and you have all kinds. We're all over the map when it comes to what do we mean by make disciples. And so you're sitting there in your, the leaders are sitting together in a room and say, okay, what is a disciple? And one of the things we've experienced in the Bonhoeffer Project are people uh, who are leaders sitting around and trying to make this simple de definition, and it takes them three hours and four hours. And after three or four hours, they still can't write it down on a piece of paper, and so they have to call a special meeting. And there leads to even more meetings. But I would say if your answer is a disciple is somebody who lives and loves like Jesus, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, a someone, a somebody who represents Jesus, uh, all of these are correct answers, but they're all not good enough. So let's talk about what would be good enough. Of course, one of the things that we are very strong on in the Bonhoeffer Project, the thing that probably sets us apart is that we start not on what a disciple is, which is the topic we're going to cover now, but we start up here with what the gospel is, because the gospel you believe in determines the disciple you make. So we believe essentially that all who are called to salvation are called to discipleship no exceptions, no excuses. Now, that's an entire message uh, right there, that one statement, and what the Bible says about that. But also we believe that the gospel you believe in determines the kind of disciple you make. And the kind of disciple you make then will determine the kind of result you get, or we call it a plan, and then you get a, now we, we spend a year with people helping them work through this process, and then they spend the next five to seven years trying to implement that plan, because that's how long it takes to really fully implement that kind of change in a congregation or in a ministry of any kind, for that matter, or any social organization or any group of men or women in their fellowship, any of those kinds of things. But now, we're going to talk about this today. What is a disciple? If you, would, uh, if you would say, okay, what's the definition of a disciple? Uh, I'm going to tell you the one I use. I'm not saying this is the best. It's certainly not the only one. But I think it's, it starts to reach what we would call the threshold of sufficiency. And so what is the way you know that you've reached sufficiency in your definition? Is it specific enough that you can know if you made one? It's specific enough so that you can duplicate it or replicate it. 
and that it can become viral and spread throughout a group of people, and that it could actually be substantial enough that you could develop a movement or a revolution, a true revolution, where it gets implemented on that. So let's talk about it. Now, I use John chapter 15, verses 7 through, I think it's 13. Now, this particular, uh, the reason I choose this is because it talks about character. It's not about theological pedigree, or it's not about breeding. It's not about uh, circumstances in which you live. It's not any of those kinds of things. This is which all those things play into this. But this is simply about character. Character is essentially, you know, the way that people change is is there is we go from desire to practices to become habits, and it becomes your character. So that's essentially the process of how people change. And that's in conversion and discipleship. There's a couple of chapters on that, the Holy Spirit and how people change. So how do I get people, you know, in this process? And the question is, how can I create tension? Tension is vital for transformation. And I'm not talking about tension that comes from trouble in your life because that's reliable, it shows up on a regular basis, but who wants a plan to have their life changed by relying on trouble and pain and sorrow and suffering to come into your life? I mean, if that's the w- and that's the way oftentimes people end up growing. The only time they end up growing, uh, becoming more Christ-like, is when their life becomes so horrible and painful and terrible that they actually start paying attention. So if that's your plan, okay. But there's also planned, planned tension, programmed tension. How do you create tension in people's lives? And that's really your role as a leader is to create tension, make people uncomfortable, be disturbing, uh, make people go home and kind of mad at you once in a while. I mean, come on, lead. This is the way it should work. So tension. I'm a real advocate of tension. How do you create tension? Okay, I'm going to give you the quick answer. It's called accountability. Okay, there you go. Now, let's go back to the definition. So first of all, a disciple or a person who abides in Christ through the, is through the word and prayer. And that's John 15, 7. So I'm just going to say to be brief, word and prayer or as I would like to say, in conversation with God through the word and prayer. All right? That's verse 7. Secondly, a disciple bears fruit, or you could say has impact, if you'd like to contemporize the statement, but the biblical language is bears fruit. All right? And it says that uh, you will bear fruit, therefore proving you are my disciples. That's interesting, huh? There's, there's the proof. That's verse 
8. And then responds in obedience. That's verses uh, 9 and 10. So obedience in Scripture, I think, and this is what Ben was talking about, what Ben finally got around to, what I mean finally is he kind of slow walked you through the whole process of grace, and then, of course, at the end, came out on the good side of grace as, a, as an advocate of grace, which I think is sometimes during that session you were wondering, is he believe in it or not believe in it? Which means he's doing a good job of presentation. Uh, but, so we, but we respond in obedience to God. God, how can you be so good? You know, how could I, you know, as Bonhoeffer said, uh, we must not make cheap what costs God everything. And so we can't withhold ourselves from God. We, have, we respond to God. He held nothing back. We hold nothing back. So that's 9 and 10. Third is, fourth is joy, or we could say contentment. That's verse 11, that the joy of Jesus, all my joy will be made full in you. All the joy, the joy is deep sense of well-being, knowing that my life is a bullseye with God. All that joy crammed into you. It's really, we can't handle that much joy. I know that for a fact. I've had moments in my life where I, I really just had to say, stop. And it's not something you feel every day, or maybe even that often. But I think those of us who walk with God and do walk with God, there are most moments where we're overwhelmed with God's joy. You know, C.S. Lewis, surprised by joy. He said, joy is that kind of thing you happens when you go to a wedding, and you're, you, find, you might be crying for joy, or you might be laughing with great joy, or, or you're, just, you're, you're filled with something that, you, that surprises you, all right? And then finally, love. Love as I've loved you. You know, he up. He upped it from the golden rule to his rule, which is love as I've loved you. And that's verses 12 and 13. Okay, so here we go. We, we have a working definition of Christ-like character of a follower of Jesus. We have to remember who he was talking to. This is the upper room. We have to remember what he was teaching them, that he was going to go away, the Holy Spirit was going to come back. These are all These are all the kinds of you know, foundational parts of understanding the context of this. All right, so let's say you're in a church, since I would imagine almost all of us are, in one way or the other, either a leader on the staff, a member, or maybe a critical spirit. But you're there, right? Okay, now, what we do is we have to, let's just start here. How am I going to, the question is, if that is a characteristic of a disciple, then how are we going to build this characteristic into people, that they would be in conversation with God through the word and prayer? Now, Dallas Willard said prayer to him was he and God talking together about what they were doing today. That's always my favorite definition of prayer. So it's a conversation with God. Is, do we teach them to have a devotional life, or do we teach them to live a life of devotion? Well, can you do both? 
Can one lead to the other? I do know this, that one of the great breakthroughs in my life was that when I realized Revelation 3.20, something that we used in Campus Crusade many years ago, behold, Christ is knocking at the door of your life. You invite them in. He will have a dine with you uh, and have fellowship with one another. And I was thinking, uh, my, my quiet time was regimented because I was taught it that way. And I felt like, and my personality kind of lent, lent itself to that, where I was reporting in for duty. And so I'd report in for duty for God. And I'd say, okay, Lord, I guess I've been told the first thing I need to do is just say how big of a sinner I am. And the second thing is, uh, what have I done wrong? What do I do right? And uh, how am I doing? And, and speak to me and tell me what to do and, and all that kind of stuff. You see, that was kind of my orientation. This is in the late 1960s. So, uh, as, but I, then one day it occurred to me, if I did open the door and let Jesus come in and sit down across the table from me, and I went through my little routine, which takes a few minutes, then what? What if he wanted to hang out with me? What would we talk about? What would that be like? I'd feel whole, really uncomfortable, wouldn't you? I mean, Jesus is sitting at the table with me. He asked for another bowl of soup. Uh, gee, this is really foreign to my thinking. And you know the thing about a friend? Here's one of the things that I, I had a guy come to me one time, and he, he wanted to be my friend. And he wanted to buy me workout clothes. He wanted to take me skiing. He wanted to take me places. And, uh, and I really, I didn't want to be his friend. All right? He went to my church. I couldn't say, just get lost, would you? You know, I got to be a Christian, all right? So, uh, now why didn't I want to be his friend? Because the reason he wanted to do these things with me is because he wanted to fix me. He always had criticisms. He had a list. He was always telling me what I need to do differently and better, how my sermons could be better, how my illustrations could be better. Uh... So he was always trying to fix me. And if somebody's always trying to fix you, you know what? You can never be their friend. And if you think God is, you know, is Jesus sitting across that table and he is, is he trying to fix me the whole time? If he's trying to fix me and straighten me out and do all that stuff, I don't want to be around him. So... Why get up an hour early to spend time with this guy? And that really was life-altering for me. And the fact that Jesus would be my friend, the Bible says he's my friend, okay, he's sitting there, he knows everything about me, he knows everything I've done, he knows everything I'm going to do, he knows what I'm really thinking, he knows my fears, he knows how uncomfortable I am, and he's not trying to fix me. He just has accepted me, and I got nothing to prove to him. Okay, how do you teach that to people? Well, the only way that I know is you have to get them in an environment and you have to show them. You have to lead them there. You have to explain it, not only just explain it. You know, what we're really good at is just telling people they ought to do this. But we don't actually get next to people, maybe 
two or three people or four or five or seven, but you design a vehicle. That's what you do. You design a vehicle and you say, okay, what is it we're going to do? How long do we need to do it? Uh, with whom do we need to do it? And, and all those questions have to be answered, and that's just for number one, okay? So now you're, you're, now you're getting somewhere. If you can answer that question, man, you are down the road quite a bit further than most ever get. And then bear fruit. Okay, how do you teach people about fruit bearing? About the fact that faithfulness is not enough. Fruitfulness is enough. So, you know, we're being faithful. You know, our church is being faithful. And then you look and you ask, how many, how many new disciples do we have? Well, we don't have any. We've lost some. We don't have any new ones. Really? And they think that's okay? Okay, wh what do we need to change? But bears fruit. Okay, so in order to get people to bear fruit, there's really, you go back to the same deal. Are people suffering? Uh, then a lot of things will come up. Now, you can't, I don't, I don't want to give you the impression that you can control fruitfulness. All I can say is that you get people in a certain environment and, it will, and you, you, you have a relationship with them, so you have relationships of trust in an environment of grace, which is not lenient. Remember what Ben said. It's not lenient. It's not passive. But it's something that energizes and it's a force. And as Dallas Ware used to say, I, I burn up more grace than anybody every day. So here's the deal. How do you bear fruit? And then respond in obedience. How do you teach obedience? How do you practice obedience in community? And the answer to all these questions is you do it in community through relationships. That's, that's kind of the basic answer. But you've got to know what you're doing. You know, churches start small groups, and they don't have any tension or accountability. They don't really specify what they're trying to accomplish. It's kind of generic and general and squishy, and it's just uh, we love each other. We love being around one another, and that's a, valid, that's a valid value and interest in people, but that can't be it only because that's frater uh, sororities and fraternities and bridge clubs, and everybody else does that stuff too. That's just very human because we are made in the image of God. Therefore, whether we're Christian or not, you know, why, how does it, why does an atheist get outraged when something really goes wrong, when a family is slaughtered, or his friend gets divorced, or somebody's suffering, uh, and they go, they get so outraged by this. They have no basis for being outraged. But the reason they're outraged is because they're made in the image of God, and that moral code is written in them on their hearts. They can't help themselves. So, now that we, you, you get this basic vehicle developed, and once you get this basic vehicle developed, then you enter people into the process, and then you reproduce it and reproduce it and reproduce it and hold everybody accountable. All right. So at this point, I'm going to invite up two pastors who are part of our Bonhoeffer leadership team. The first is Sandy Mason of Desert View Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. He planted that church 17 years ago. 
He is a faithful disciple-making pastor. I've known Sandy. I preached in all his churches, and they survived. And then, yeah, Matt Kearns. Matt Kearns is, for many years, was in youth ministry, and then for 12 years, he was uh, director of, what was the title? Catalyst for Disciple-Making in the Missouri Baptist Convention, and a year ago, or thereabouts, became the lead pastor at Crest View, Woodcrest Church in Columbia, Missouri, a hotbed of conservatism, isn't it? Yeah, there. Okay. So these two guys are going to talk about how they go about this process of making disciples and designing it and all that in their local church. Some real stories now. The theoretician will sit down. Did you want to sit down? Uh, you want to sit down. You're on your right. feet. I'll sit down. How many here are uh, in full-time ministry, pastoring? Yeah. Look at, if you're not, look at them. They are tired. They are a bit discouraged, a bit overwhelmed. What they came into ministry for, they're finding is so hard to do, and they're running a Christian organization that is not about the core of their heart and passion and call. Uh, if you study the statistics on men and women leaving ministry, it's epidemic. My, my brother, who's a PhD at the University of Tennessee and studies this stuff, sent me an email one day, Sandy, I've been looking at your profession. It's pathetic. Uh, the rate of divorce, addiction, suicide. It's because we live in a culture that is so toxic to the values that we own and preach and live by. So if you're in ministry, God bless you. Don't quit. I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to know that the Lord Jesus is really glad you're here because he wants you to be about the thing that called you into this in the first place. And I've been in ministry a long time, and there is a centrifugal force in the church that pulls you away from the foundational call. It's the fallenness of human nature. It's uh, uh, 2,000 years of creating an organization that's different than what he started with. So you're up against a lot. And uh, we are honored that you're here and we want to serve you. And that's what the Bonhoeffer Project and this radical tall gentleman is all about, is he wants to serve you with the every breath that he has. So we are honored that you're here. Uh, people will say, well, this gospel, how many were at the first deal with Ben? Okay, most of you, great. You came back. That's kind of cool that they came back for round two, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things I had to wrestle with, and that's what we do in the Bonhoeffer Project. If you get in a cohort, we take time to wrestle with, well, what is the gospel? What's the gospel I've been teaching? My story, I was a uh, a good uh, church-going pagan at the Arizona State University, go Sun Devils. And where? What? what? Are you one? Oh, my brother from another mother. We got to touch flesh after this some way, forehead or something. They're going to beat those Trojans on Saturday good, aren't they, man? They're going to hurt those Trojans, make them change their mascot to something else. So I'm the president of the frat. I'm in student government. I'm a devil's advocate. I'm a guy that goes to high schools and tells the high school kids why they ought to go to ASU. I mean, I'm just performing and doing, and there's this void in me just getting louder and louder asking the question of the Peggy Lee song, is this all there is? Is this all there is? 
and I'm dating a cute girl, a nursing student, and uh, I'm, I'm doing all the right things, and it's Sunday morning, and I'm hungover, and I'm sipping seven up and crackers, and the nerd of the frat comes in, Jeff Patterson, he's short, he's got a terrible complexion, his voice is changing, he drives a Studebaker, he's in the marching band, there's just nothing cool about Patterson, and he loves Christ with a passion. And uh, long story short, he asked me, you wouldn't want to ask Jesus in your life today, would you? And all of a sudden I realized, I think this is who I've been looking for all my life. So I say, Jesus, come in, and he came in. I mean, he came in and turned on the lights. It's like I've been wearing the wrong prescription glasses, and the Spirit uh, blew open the doors of my heart, and, and then I went to a meeting. That was Sunday, Tuesday night, I went to a meeting. It was the Campus Crusade meeting. Uh, they wheeled an old gnarled guy in a wheelchair, Elmer Lappin. Did you ever meet Elmer Lappin? I did. Elmer Lappin, he was a track star in New York, but uh, rheumatoid arthritis had turned him into a guy like this, and they rolled him out in a wheelchair, and uh, I thought, oh, that poor guy, I guess we're going to pray for him, and they put a microphone into his hand, and, and that man took over the room, and all these cocky uh, young college kids, we were captured by this man's love and heart for Christ. And he said to us over and over that semester, you have been one to Christ, to be built up in Christ, to be sent out to Christ. And it was on the walls, and it was in the literature, and it was coming out of him every week. Win, build, send. Win, build, send. So if anybody asks me in the fraternity or any classroom on campus or anything, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian? Win, build, send. Win, build, send. I had it. I was soaked in it. It was my DNA. It's what I thought it meant to be a Christian. And then I decided, well, I guess I should go to church. I hear Christians go to church, so I'll go to church. And when I went into church, did I find wind-built sand? I found sit down, soak and sour. And I wanted to be part of that. And the Lord had to drag me back into the local church and call me into ministry. But that's, that's the great gift for me is wind-built sand. And now I found in the local church, most of my folks who say they love Christ, that they're saved, they're going to heaven, they were not schooled in wind, build, send. They were schooled in pray a prayer, now go to services, maybe help serve, but they, they don't have the vision. And when I tell them that the call was to take up your cross and follow Jesus, they'll say, well, show me where Paul says that. So I'm going to show you right now because they're going to ask you that. Well, did Paul say that? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Have you read it in a while? Romans 12, 1 and 2, I believe, is Paul's version of take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. But he puts it like this, I beg you. And that's what you're going to have to go back and say to your dear ones at your church. I beg you. I love his posture. It's as if he's kind of like, I, I beg you. In light of the mercies of God, in light of chapters 1 to 11, all the grace of God, I beg you, in light of the mercy of God, to raise your hand and pray this prayer with me. What does he say? I beg you, in light of the mercy of God, give your whole self. Come on. Everything you are, every, your whole body, that's your what? Your living sacrifice. That's what it means to follow Christ. It's a living sacrifice. It's giving your whole self. That's the gospel. That's the right response to the gospel, your whole self. And that's not the gospel that your folks have been tutored in. 
And so the great challenge is how do I get them to see that's the whole gospel and that's the gospel that will help them know the will of God. They all want to know the will of God. Man, you do a Sunday school class or a seminar on the will of God and everybody signs up. But if you start that seminar with how many have done Romans 12:1 already, well, then you're never going to know the will. The other thing is that worship is sacrifice. You ask your people today, what's worship? They'll say worship is singing. I love these worship songs. What did we sing in worship? And I love to sing. I love music. But worship is always sacrifice. The whole Bible is about what you bring to worship. What animal did you bring? What blood are you pouring out? And we've turned worship around. You you see what we're up against? You see why it's so hard to be in ministry and why you need to pray? If you're a lay leader, you need to pray and love your pastor. They They do not need more advice. They do not need more friends to critique them. They need people to just stand with them and say, you've got such a hard call in this culture, and I will pray with you and I'll stand with you because they're up against it. I mean, we don't understand worship. We don't understand the gospel. So what do we do? I'm going to say one more thing and then wake up, Matt. You're going to get a chance at this. Uh, so here's what we've done at Desert View. We, we have created uh, these Bible studies because Christians always sign up for Bible studies, amen? So we've created adult Bible studies where you sit around a table every week with six, seven other same-gender adults, and you commit, you make a covenant that you will study the passage we've given you. We'll do Romans, we'll do the Gospel of Luke. Right now we're doing Exodus. They get the whole book in an eight and a half by 11 notebook, double space. We are gonna teach them to study the Bible so that they can teach somebody else. So we say to you, if you give a man or a woman a fish, they eat today. If you teach them the fish, they eat for a lifetime. So we say to them, this Bible study, you do all the work. I don't do all the work. You do all the work. Here's the questions to get you in the text. I'll teach you how to observe. I'll teach you how to interpret what you deserve. And I'll teach you how to apply what you deserve. And you've got to come every week. And you'll spend the first part of the time sharing what the Lord showed you. And then I will do a closing application so you get it. And you're going to come every week, and the table leader's going to follow up with you. So there's accountability in, your, in the Word, and we're going to teach you to pray. So when they pray, I say, here's your prayer list. When I tell them, put some prayer requests, what's always the first thing they put on their prayer requests? Uh, my uncle's having a re- knee replacement. Can we pray for my uncle? Uh, so-and-so has cancer, and there's so much cancer. That's always, you know, he's just, I tell them, well, you can't pray for any health issues. Well, then what do we pray for? I want you to put the name of three men or three women that you want to know Christ, that you will be meeting with to share with them what you've learned from the word so they can share with others. And so now that's the prayer request every week. Pull out your list of men, pull out your list of women. Let's pray for them and let's watch God open doors. So that's, that's how we are saying a disciple is in word and prayer and it takes accountability. It takes meeting with others who show up every week. When you don't show up, they want to know why. You've done the work. You're studying the word. It's not come listen to the expert, drop the pearls. It's what you're studying. And so then you start to talk about your character and application and you find out this is a lot more fun. And that's what they find out. That's the joy and the love. They find out, you know, it's a lot more fun to be growing in the word myself so that I can 
share with others and I can share the gospel with others and to just be that passive thing where I just sit there and you throw me some pearls. So that's one of the ways that we're doing that. Right now, we're a church of probably uh, 900 to 1,000 adults on Sunday and two services, another 400 kids and teenagers. Uh, my wife's women's Bible study, she has 350 women on Wednesday morning, another 110 Wednesday night. So that's a pretty good percentage out of a congregation average attendance of 1,000. I have 150 guys Thursday morning from 6 to 7.30, and they're sitting around the tables and sharing their life and praying for each other and, and weeping and laughing and finding out that this Christian life is really fun. So that's what we're doing right now. Did I answer your question? That helps. All right, Matthew, make it more clear. Should I use this one? Yeah, it's working. Is it all right if I sit down? Is that all right? Uh, well, first, I'm honored uh, to be here. And I don't know, uh, as a pastor for uh, 14, I can't do math very well, 14 months, I'm sure I have a lot of wisdom to share with all of you pastors in the room. Um, what I can do is tell a couple of stories about gaps uh, that I came to discover. And a part of that happened um, as I was in the doctoral research process. I began reading. I came across uh, uh, Bill's writing. I started reading a lot of those. And that came on the heels of another experience. I went to work for a national organization uh, and uh, on on a shelf in one of my buddy's offices, I found a uh, copy of the Master Plan of Evangelism. I know I should first be talking about conversion and discipleship, but um, and you should read that, and it's really good. Uh, but I found a copy of Master Plan of Evangelism. I remember I, I, in seminary, this was one of the required reading assignments, and I think I read it like I read several other required reading assignments, um, a paragraph or two of each chapter in order to be able to finish that, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is that I had to submit about that. But this time I picked it up. Uh, my heart was in a different place, and I sat down and read it that day. I, I couldn't put it down. And so I, um, the next thing I did was I, I tried to get a hold of Dr. Coleman, and I, so I called him. I expected to get his office, um, and I've always been made fun of for, for doing those kinds of things. Um, but I just figure if you have a chance to get a chance to talk to, to people like that, you gotta take advantage of that opportunity. And so I, I made the call and unfortunately for me, Dr. Coleman answered the phone <laughs> and uh, I said, hello. And he said, hello. And I said, I was trying to reach Dr. Coleman and he said, this is him. And then I didn't know what to do after that because um, I was expecting a s assistant or something like that. And I said, Dr. Coleman, I don't e now I don't even know what to say. I wasn't expecting you. And he said, well, I answer my phone, son. <laughs> and, uh, and, f and for the next 20 minutes, I shared with him that I just finished reading the Master Plan of Evangelism. And I apologized for, for not reading it uh, before then. And uh, he spent about 20 minutes on the phone and, and then we reached a place where he said, you're going to have to excuse me. I have to go. And I was just dumb and naive and nosy enough to ask him where he was going. And, and he said, I've got to go uh, meet with uh, some young men. And then he proceeded to tell me that he was meeting that night and he met three nights a week. He was 77 at the time. Uh, he met, met three nights a week with a group of six or eight uh, men on the campus, his wife, and he had moved onto the campus. They busted out a wall between two dorm rooms. 
and they were living in the dorm and he was meeting three nights a week with a group of men and she was meeting three nights a week with a group of women. And when I hung up the phone, I'm like, um, I don't even know what to say about that except to say there's real power in people who don't just write about things or talk about things but actually live it. And then when you're somebody like this who I have, you know, like who is at age 77 then and I can – tell you uh, on through the rest of the years that he has become a mentor and a friend, that's still what he's doing. He's, he's, he's not just talking about it or writing about it. He's doing it. And he helped me clarify one of the gaps that existed in my life was the gap between uh, evangelism and discipleship. And now I hear, and then I began to read what Bill was writing about it. And, and uh, I, I asked Dr. Coleman at one point along the way, Dr. Coleman, if you could give any counsel um, he was at an event, a room full of Baptists, I'm Southern Baptist background. He'd come in to speak at this event, and I said, hey, if you could go out here and say anything you want to, which, by the way, you can. <laughs> You're Robert Coleman, so I don't, I'm not going to stop you. Um, I said, what, what would you say? And he said, um, Matt, I, I would urge you and, and this denomination to be cautious of making this, the mistake my beloved denomination has made in elevating education above simple obedience. And it was really clear um, when he shared that night um, that this was true in his life. And then he said, Matt, here's what I would do if I were you. Surround yourself with those who won't allow you to excuse disobedience in not making disciples while being busy doing ministry. And I know that Bill wrote in his book, and it reminded me when you asked him the question, you know, when you get to heaven, you know, what's the question Jesus is going to ask? And Dr. Coleman said, what's your excuse for doing everything else but making disciples? And that stuck with me. And so um, I share that with you because through the Bonhoeffer Project, in fleshing this out with some other people, um, my conversion experience was maybe uh, similar to some of yours. A lot of time and energy and effort went into me making a decision and then beyond that, it was kind of hit or miss. Um, there were maybe some classes to go to. Um, and I say this, um, hoping that this isn't recorded, um, because, okay, great. Um, well, then I need to give this disclaimer and say, I'm the byproduct of so many other faithful people who poured into and invested my life. And so for you to hear me say that as some kind of criticism of those people would not be what I would want you to hear because... Um, it's only because of all of the things that they did do that I even know who Jesus is and, and sit here like this. But I do know that we didn't have a plan. And how that came to be was when I began the doctoral process, come full circle uh, two decades later, I'm working at the Missouri Baptist Convention and I mail out a survey to pastors and church leaders all over the state of Missouri, an anonymous survey. And uh, I can share the specifics of the results with you if you need them, but you don't. Uh, because you know it already, and that is what I discovered is um, not only do we uh, not have a plan for making disciples in our churches, uh, I, actually, I, the survey was anonymous, and, and it was a Likert scale survey, so it was one to five, just kind of circle them. There weren't any blanks to fill in, but that didn't stop some people uh, from writing all around the edges of the paper and providing a great deal of criticism and telling me about how I'm asking the wrong questions and who do I think I am and this isn't the point and you are misunderstanding, which was 
very informative. Um, but what I can tell you is for those, uh, even if you look through the, the halo effect at the answers in an anonymous survey, what it was very clear, what, what it revealed very clearly is we don't, not only do we not have a plan for making disciples, but in large part, the reason why we don't have a plan is because we're not personally engaged in making disciples. And so when you're not personally engaged in making disciples, uh, you lose all your moral authority to talk to others about making disciples. And uh, so um, cl- closing the gap or bridging the gap between misunderstanding conversion and discipleship as two separate things or evangelism and discipleship as two separate things is something that I would submit to you, the Bonhoeffer Project, uh, really helped to bring some clarity uh, on in, in my life uh, and in my experience uh, in it. Um, the, the question that, that I came to realize was I, I, didn't, I don't think anybody intended this. But my understanding of what it meant to become a follower of Jesus always led to the question, what's in it for me? And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus intended to be the question for anybody uh, who comes to follow him. God's work in my life is not about me. It's always about others. My life doesn't belong to me, as Bill was just talking about. It belongs to him. And as Romans 12, 1 and 2 points out, one other quick story I would share Another mentor and teacher in my life was a man named Calvin Miller, and um, he is uh, hard to categorize. Uh, But if you're unfamiliar with his work and his writing, I I would encourage you to consider it. Uh, But he was a seminary professor. He he didn't belong there. He was a bit of an eclectic. um, But I reached – again, this is what I got made fun of all the time, but I went to him after class one time and just asked if I could uh, meet with him. I can still hear a friend of mine in particular mocking me uh, for being a teacher's pet. But I thought, you you get a chance to get around people like this. Why wouldn't you want to take advantage of that opportunity? And I didn't even ask for this, but it led to me spending a semester once a week at Wendy's with Calvin Miller, which I still have a hard time believing happened. And um, one of the things that he taught me that I could hear him saying as Bill was talking earlier, I remember sitting at Wendy's one day. And he said, Matt, I'm going to make, I, want, I think I want to make this really simple. What you're going to discover in, in following Jesus and in making disciples is that following Jesus always leads to Golgotha, up a hill, and onto a cross. And the sooner you come to grips with that, the better off you're going to be. And he said, you should also keep in mind to maintain a low profile on hilltops because crucifixions are still happening. <laughs> And if you're going to consider ministry, um, you need to know that that's going to be a part of the experience for you. And he said that in the middle of my life at the time, which was in a shambles. Um, uh, Family was falling apart and just all kinds of things uh, were going on at that time. Um, But um, again, those are words that came back to me later on in the Bonhoeffer Project uh, when I realized, man, um, God's call to me, the, the, the gap can exist between um, education, figuring out programs and all those kinds of things, and then a lot of the experience that I've had now in being through the cohort experience with other men is um, maybe the best part of the whole thing has been uh, working on the plan and talking about definitions and, and unlearning and relearning what the gospel is and disciple and all of these terms. But in the middle of the process is this opportunity to take all of that and set it aside for a minute 
and then everybody read through a gospel together and just look at what Jesus does with the disciples and then come back and talk about that and then lay that over the top of all of my best plans, all of my best efforts. And, and it kind of highlights a gap. Um, and the gap is Jesus did this, but maybe I could do it better. And there's no need for any improvement upon what Jesus modeled for us and chose to do with the disciples. And that um, in process is why I believe it's so important. I've talked to so many people, like, can't you do this in three months? Or can't we simplify this? Or can't you do it in six to shorten this down? I don't think you can and have the opportunity for, for Jesus to highlight the gaps that exist in our thinking and then have a chance to work that out with other brothers and sisters and come to God's conclusion about what it is he has invited us to do. It's very clear, very specific, and it's also very simple. Those are the stories that I would share with regards to gaps. And... Well, thank you, Matt. I just and... heard a guy dropping a lot of names. I didn't really get much helpful yeah, well, stuff, you know, Calvin. Miller, do you have something Robert else? Uh... No, I, I, I think I could drop a name. I'm All right, sure go ahead. I think for a while. Okay. I went to a Billy Graham crusade. <laughs> okay, enough said. All right. Um, well, we've come to that point now in the session where uh, I just wanted to do a couple of things. One is uh, subscribe to our podcast. It's new. Uh, it, it's uh, fun for me. Uh, it's kind of like a way to have a pulpit and communicate with you on a regular basis. And you can see that on the BonhoeffersProject.com website and or, you know, through iTunes. But the, you can sample it and all that kind of stuff on the website. Also, uh, we're really trying in the, in the podcast to encounter the fact that we've been making disciples for the last 50 years in one sort of another under certain banners, certain nomenclature over the last half century in America. And there have been uh, some remarkable achievements. And we have uh, created the megachurch. We have done a number of other kinds of things that have gotten the attention of our society and of the political world. But at the same time, we've lost the culture. And that just doesn't seem correct, huh? That we've made disciples, that we built churches, and we've lost the culture. That didn't seem to go together to me. And the culture, like Sandy was mentioning, is toxic, like toxic air. And so in the podcast, we're dealing with a whole variety of subjects. And, uh, but essentially, we're talking about the world view that we hold, and that's about God and religion. And then we go next to the whole issue of culture, the domains of culture, the major institutions, how we do life together as a people. And then finally about politics, which is simply a reflection of that. So we, we talk about all of these kinds of dynamics on the podcast. So we hope you try it out. And if you like it, have other people tell them about it. And we hope that it'll become a, a great forum for us to communicate the values. More of the kinds of things you're hearing today are we have a lot more leisure and time to develop on the podcast. So we hope you will check it out. Uh, also, with regard to joining cohorts, if you are interested in a cohort, if you'd like to participate in one, all you need to do is go to our website and let us know. 
And when it says join a cohort, I believe, or that's really, you're just making a application. And uh, it, it has what we do, it has a number of other things there, so you can learn more and more about it. And if you do uh, just fill out the form, it'll come to us. Uh, one of our people will come to you and, uh, and communicate with you, uh, and uh, there'll be, you know, you can have a conversation about the whole process. Or you can have a conversation with any of the people that we have here, any of the people you've seen up on the stage, along with Cindy Perkins, who will come and be leading us in the next session and uh, with her team, um, and Sandy and Matt and Denny Heiberg, the guy with the Yankee hat on. Is that a Yankee hat today? Yes, sir. And Ben Sobels, of course, who uh, was our, our speaker in the first hour. All right. So we're going to now give away some books. Here we go. Okay, we're going to do like five or six again, huh? Something like that. Six. Uh, Joel Singleton. Joel, where are you? Okay. Um, Michael or Mikel Monahan. There you go. Steve Smith. There's Steve. Joe Tudor. There's Joe. Robert Baker. Uh, Jason Lale. Okay, Jason. That's it? All right. So we have three more minutes. Anybody want to ask a question, make a comment? Well, I, I think the, the distinction uh, that, uh, that I've mentioned before at times is that we deal with, we start upstream with the gospel because we believe the gospel you believe in determines the disciple you make, and then we go to what a disciple is, and then we go to the plan because the gospel you believe in determines the disciple you make, which then your plan needs to be in alignment for that. And we're not, we, we don't have, we don't give you a bunch of answers. What we give you is a process so that essentially you're writing your own plan based on who you are, your giftedness, your circumstances, the people you work with, and that can be in a congregation. It can be in a, some sort of a parachurch organization. It could be as a plumber. It could be as a, uh, one of the, best plans we've ever seen executed was by a uh, PhD in pharmaceuticals uh, at the University of, uh, at, not the University of Florida, but he's uh, actually at the Veterans Hospital in Gainesville, Florida. And that gentleman uh, has now a groups of men uh, numbering well over 50 that he's ministering to and demonstrating that he just the Bonhoeffer Project just provided him a space and the time and the focus and the concentration to develop, get out of his heart what it was inside, out, out of his mind what he understood, and it changed everything for him. So it, it's not just for men who are pastors. It's for men and women who are leaders. It's, that's essentially what essentially we turn leaders into disciple makers. So the only thing is that you are a leader. Now, leadership is, you know, there's micro-leadership. 
there's kind of mezzanine level leadership and there's macro leadership. So even the size of who you lead uh, or the group you lead is not really that important here. Uh, that's individual to you. But thank you for that question, sir. Okay, good question. Uh, why did we, what inspired us to name it the Bonhoeffer Project and not, let's say, the Robert Coleman Project or something like that? Okay, the reason is that we, I, I personally have, was influenced as a young man by Diedrich Bonhoeffer and The Cost of Discipleship, his book. And then uh, as I studied him throughout the years, his life, you know, was, Bonhoeffer was not an evangelical. He was a German intellectual who was born in 1906 and went to the University of Berlin, maybe the most liberal theological place you could have been at at that time when he was a student there and got his Ph.D. at 21. But he stood up uh, when it really mattered. And so today we'd probably call him somewhat neo-Orthodox. He was very much uh, a disciple of both Martin Luther and as a young man, but then also Karl Barth later. But he was uh, a devout man. I mean, uh, I would stack up his understanding of what it means to walk with Christ with anyone's. And so that's what inspired us. Uh, especially when he went to prison. You don't go to prison. Uh, I'm glad to say I've never been in prison. But when you're in prison, I would think it brings out the, both the best and the worst in you. And with Bonhoeffer, it clearly brought out his best. And some of his best uh, writing, some of his best work, but his devoutness, his devotion to Jesus was so evident uh, by his last words before he walked the gallows up to the gallows steps. He said, many people think, for me, this is an end, but actually, it's a beginning. And so that's a basically a paraphrase because it's been written in history so many different ways by various people, but that's essentially what he said. Okay, I think we're going to have to close because it's 3.02. Thank you for coming. That's it for today's episode. Make sure to download the Bonhoeffer Project Founders book, and download the Discipleship Gospel Primer by Bill Hull and Ben Sobels. Go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for the Discipleship Gospel Primer. Thanks for listening.